Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This chapter, fittingly enough, the conclusion of our three-part look at Frank Lloyd Wright's thoughts on design and the machine, marks our 30th episode. And this release date, January 18th, 2016, is exactly one year since our first episode covering Louis Sullivan. We would like to begin by thanking you all for embarking on this journey with us. We owe the strength and enthusiasm to continue with this effort to your feedback, emails, and iTunes reviews, many of which have touched us deeply. Lapsus Lima sprang from the melancholy notion that if we somehow set out feelers into the world, we might be met with a response, no matter how small, that was honest and free of institutionalized behavior. We have found in you, dear listeners, who often have become dear friends, a very real community that we were not afforded in the exercise of a profession grown so gruesomely political or in the ideological glory hole that academia has become. Thank you to each and all of you. We will have many surprises in store as the podcast enters its second, and we hope, more radical year. In our previous offer, we left off just as Wright was about to enter his discussion on the nature of materials. With his signature audacity, he had gone so far as to re-present the solar system as organic rather than mechanical, and it was in the frame of this analogy that he saw the machine as something destined to occupy a place within a world made up of things that were grown, not assembled. In this guise, materials would be fundamental in a revolution already at hand. So what, then, is the material? It is, literally, what comes between the mind of the designer and the power of the machine, and so it bears what might be termed as a true synthesis of form. Material is shaped both by the external logic of the machine and the internal decisions of the mind, and this dance of within and without that is played out on any given material is yet another reason why the substance dualism we spent time on in our earlier two chapters is so fatally restrictive. The contrast between organic growth and dualistic assembly is diametric, absolute. In the organic, Progressive iteration applies genetic information to matter, or, in Wright's later catchphrase, power applied to purpose. The instruction set is not, then, a plan set for assembly, but a path for development, 
guided by countless memories of previous successful solutions. Furthermore, every element or subsystem is perceived to be alive and to behave accordingly unto itself. Leibniz, whom we have visited so many times before, has already defined an organism as a machine, the parts of which never cease to subdivide into smaller, active ones. So, rather than a clock that has gears as its smallest constituents, and which then makes the huge jump into iron atoms, organisms are a smooth spectrum of living constellations, ranging from the largest to the smallest scales. By contrast to the deep history of genetic development, mechanical entities created by assembly are designed strictly by the conscious mind. Much like a spotlight, consciousness is very powerful, but also intently focused and narrow. Without the broader perspective of organic growth, much will be, as a matter of course, overlooked. Even with the most advanced parametric software, every variable in a building can never be accounted for, controlled, and balanced. With a mechanical process, two major specific advantages of the organic, amongst some others, are left out. The first is the process of morphology, or the growth of shape itself. This goes very far to select the best adapted forms, and helps reduce some variables considerably, making the conscious mind a more successful spotlight. An additional advantage of the organic process is that treating objects and materials as if they were living things, invested with their own inherent logic and behaviors, discards a world of undesirable variations before falling into one of several retrospectively necessary paths. It is this treatment of the organicity of materials that Wright addresses in his reflections on the nature of materials, discussing in turn wood, marble, stone, terracotta, glass, paper, and steel. By contrast, we will in future episodes see how Le Corbusier praised the machine's treatment of materials for pushing imperfect external objects into more exact representations of internal Euclidean geometry. Wright, on the other hand, extols the living beauty of the material itself that can be released when a designer acknowledges how the machine, far from killing off life in the built environment, challenges us to realize newly developed organic forms. He begins with wood, the most available of home-building materials, naturally then the most abused. Its mistreatment consists in using the machine to lend the appearance 
of handcrafted techniques to factory-made pieces. This lent a layer of abstraction to the production process which bore complete fidelity to a fixed and arbitrary notion of nostalgic decoration, recalling that the early 20th century bias was that both nostalgia and decoration were misguided impulses. The stronger criticism, to our eyes, though, is quite simply that this mechanically applied form was both fixed and arbitrary. When a hand tool is used, for example, every mark shows evidence of the interaction between the mind and the material. Each trace serves a specific purpose within a specific context. When applied by a machine to a generalized type, however, this genetic relationship is completely vitiated. Mechanical, handworking decoration could be properly described as cartoonish insofar as it is the indication of the memory of something living. Wright thought that the machine had changed how wood was rendered irreversibly. A different process of creation will produce a different creature. We have something that, though neither needfully better or worse, is nonetheless evolution, and this distinct behavior of wood in the machine age, Wright believed, was best suited to exhibiting the qualities of wood, such as texture or color. In a move that surely made the purest architects of the next generation wince, he proclaimed that the machine had made possible and, without waste, beautiful surface treatments and clean, strong forms that veneers of Sheraton or Chippendale only hinted at with dire extravagance. This was, in his words, beauty unknown even to the Middle Ages. With an optimistic tone, he argued that exquisite surfaces once thought of as impossibly luxurious, might soon be within everyone's reach. The machine brought similar transformations for marble. Planers, pneumatic chisels, and rubbing beds have made it possible to reduce blocks ten feet long, six feet deep, and two feet thick to sheets or thin slabs an inch in thickness within a few hours, so it is now possible to use a precious material as ordinary wall covering. He would much rather have an artist beautifully treat the symmetrical lines of booked marble on a wall than cover it with fanciful imitations of classical columns and pilasters, the forms of which were not in concert either with the structure of the building or with the grain of the stone. He then steps back to note that the materials used by the ancients, wood and stone foremost among them, have all been rendered fit 
for plastic use by the machine. What was once, by fact of necessity, solid and firm, could now be easily shaped into anything that might be imagined by the time travel that rapid machine production, such as milling or drilling, provided. As he correctly noted, this increase in variables is likely to lure the designer into taking some of the many bad choices from among very few good ones. His admonition to avoid this from happening was for one to listen to how the machine and the material worked in consonance. The discussion then proceeds to terracotta, the burnt clay material that had traditionally been used for pots and roof tiles. This particular material, a favorite of Sullivan's, expressed the plastic possibilities of the machine to an incredible degree. Wright says, Modern machines, and a process is a machine, have rendered this material as sensitive to the creative brain as a dry plate is to the lens of the camera, a marvelous simplifier this material rightly used. The artist is enabled to clothe the steel structure, now becoming characteristic of this era with modestly beautiful plastic robes. He states that terracotta can greatly simplify design, replacing an inelegant conglomerate of five or more different kinds of material to clad buildings with a unified surface. Seizing upon the idea of process itself as a machine, he quickly runs through a list of materials all of which use machinery to be transformed from a primordial frit through a liquid phase into a cooled and hardened synthetic product. The crucible of industry promised new alchemy. Without exaggeration, multitudes of processes, many new, more coming, await sympathetic interpretation such as the galvanoplastic and its electrical brethren, a prolific horde. In a sense, Wright even anticipated the modern equivalent of making false gold, that is, the dangers of synthesis misapplied in extreme imitation, as with cheap makers imitating real bronzes and all manner of metallic antiques secretly damning all of them in their vitals, if not openly giving them away. An eloquent ambiguity lies within this rhetoric. The cheap imitations lack the authenticity of older products, yet they damningly sweep them away. The 20th century watched this happen as plastic worked its way into our lives. Though primitive plastics, especially vulcanized rubber, were in rapid development by 1903, the famous thermoset Bakelite, 
commonly found in old black telephones and other household devices from the 20s and 30s, would not be invented until 1907. By emphasizing flexible, plastic qualities, Wright was properly anticipating one of the most dramatic shifts in material production that the century would suffer. Although glass is fundamentally an ancient plastic, the machine mutated its material presentation too. Wright mourned the fact that electroglazing was shunned because the resulting straight lines in glasswork are too severely clean and delicate, as though nature would not know what to do with its own rectilinear. It is often forgotten that straight lines are a part of nature. Spiderwebs, birds' beaks, and feather shafts and grain as well as crystals contain straight lines. Fruit falling from a tree does so straight down, as Newton had observed with fascination. An inchworm, hanging by a silk thread if there is no wind, provides a plumb line and weight, the very definition of an orthogonal straight line. What renders something unnatural is for it to be impertinent or out of place, not whether it is curved or straight. So it may not be accidental that Wright next mentions a lithograph that can imprint millions of miles of straight-edged paper, touching again upon the coming information age. He remarked that the mechanical reproduction of images and books was in its most tender infancy. Consider all the straight lines that a book implies. The bookshelf holding it is straight, to accommodate the shape of its contents. A curved, so-called natural bookshelf might be symbolic, but it is not organic. Books are rectangles, filled with more rectangles, and this is a vast improvement upon the curved scrolls of antiquity. Rectangular pages fit the rectangular blocks of text. There is no alphabet the sentences of which run in anything other than straight lines. The best computer screens will always be rectangular, and for excellent reason, since the muscles in our eyes move naturally and most comfortably side to side and up and down. It can so be asserted that the orthogonal and straight lines of a bookcase are organic, human-centered architecture. They relate directly through a system of living interrelations to the muscles around our eyes. Perhaps nothing so much as steel embodied the complex human, material, and technological interrelations of the 19th century. It is with discussion of this material that Wright directs his lecture into a discussion of integral ornament, expressed within the third dimension. Though steel is often thought of as a modern invention, the material itself is an ancient one, 
It was the technology enabling the mass production of homogeneous high-grade steel that to a large extent made possible the built world we know today. Wright mentions how the structural necessity which once shaped Parthenons, pantheons, cathedrals, is fast being reduced by the machine to a skeleton of steel or its equivalent, complete in itself without the artist craftsman's touch. In a haunting recapitulation of our earlier mention of spiritualization, Wright claims that it is easy to see how the ancient structural necessities and the types of building they made necessary would come to vanish. The mainspring of their physical existence now removed, their spiritual center has shifted, and nothing remains but the impassive features of a dead face. Such is our classic architecture. He states that the architect is no longer restricted by the stone arch of the Romans or the beam of the Greeks. The machine itself, eventually, will satisfy the simple terms of its modern art equation as the ball of clay in the sculptor's hand yields to his desire. Again, he states the synthesis of the material and the will. The machine, when properly deployed, is not meant for the automatic transfer of ideas into the world. It is what helps return us to a situation bordering the natural originality of handling clay. As a dead culture lies spiritualized in the fossil record of classical architecture, Wright draws our attention to the question of the future. Every people has done its work, therefore evolved its art as an expression of its own life using the best tools. For the industrial West, he felt that meant machines, where in centuries past, this had meant slaves. Despite this legacy, which he was quick to disown, Wright observed that out of a craft rooted in mass suffering, a typical beauty arose. Greek ornament expressed the acanthus and the honeysuckle, while Egypt turned to the papyrus and the lotus. He mentioned how Japan had used a chrysanthemum, while Tudor England had its roses. But Wright did not interpret these typical images as symbols. He saw them instead as something more deeply rooted, and considering how culture-wide iconography spreads, as more plausible than what symbolic interpretation supposes. The name he gave this evolution of image out of living material and culture was conventionalization. It means that a Greek or Egyptian found a revelation of the inmost life 
and character of the lotus and acanthus in terms of lotus or acanthus life. That was what happened when the art of these people had done with the plants they most loved. Just as any artist craftsman wishing to use a beloved flower for the stone capital of a column shaft in his building must conventionalize the flower, that is, find the pattern of its life principle in terms of stone as a material before he can rightly use it as a beautiful factor in his building. So education must take the natural man to civilize him. And this great new power of the dangerous machine we must learn to understand and then learn to use as this valuable conventionalizing agent. But in the construction of a society, as in the construction of a great building, the elemental conventionalizing process is dangerous. For without the inspiration or inner light of the true artist, the quality of the flower, its very life, is lost, leaving a withered husk in the place of living expression. In this example of successful architecture, three interacting entities are framed. The life principle of the flower, the life of the stone or other material, and the artist's inner light. Wright makes it explicit that a proper education is required for an individual to be open to this light at all. In many ways, he knew his audience well. This group of reformist, Protestant Midwesterners would have been very open to rhetoric of the Quaker inner light and the necessity of education as cultural uplift. The conclusion of the lecture lands in safe, familiar territory, but in order to arrive there, Wright had made a spectacle of taming a dragon. The machine and industry were two barbarities this audience held in lower regard than even alcohol and Catholicism. And though we might smile at the seemingly naive reaction to industrial economy, our own culture is still utterly resistant to the most important aspect of this lecture, namely, the organic or post-mechanistic worldview. It is not possible to step beyond the limitations and lacerations of machine culture without reorienting ourselves towards this new understanding of dialogue amongst parts and between self and the world, inside and out. If our culture has embraced machines without amending our worldview, we have simply made use of increased convenience to inure ourselves to a damage that is as present now as it was in 1903, if not yet more insidiously installed. 
with this lecture, Frank Lloyd Wright opened the door on what he hoped would be the royal road of 20th century architecture. Instead, his viewpoint was ignored and pushed aside, even ridiculed, though there would always be architects who followed it to some extent in later decades. At the very end of the 20th century, with some help from computer science, the discourse of morphology would catch up with the discourse on materials that Wright had triggered with this lecture. We will arrive to that point in due course, but in the meantime, join us as we transition back to Europe and the Bauhaus by way of Walter Benjamin's widely read, though glibly understood, thoughts on creativity and the machine. The work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, next on Lapsus Lima.